Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm sitting having a cup of tea with Andy Harris, who's the CEO and founder of Left Bank Pictures in his wonderful office in London on High Holborn. Andy, it's good to see you. Uh, it's great to see you, Mike. Thank you for coming around. Now, I'm glad you corrected me because it's, it, you say it's Harris, but it's actually Welsh. It's, it's Harry's. Harry's in Wales, yes. If you were in, if you were in uh, sort of uh, uh, wandering around West Wales, they would say, oh, yes, Andy Harris. Yes, we've known Andy Harris for a long, long time. I could see how that could terrify Englishmen. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when we were talking earlier, you told me you actually started out as a uh, as a journalist. I did. Yes, you I wanted did. to be a, Viet- a Vietnam War correspondent. I did. I know it's tragic, wasn't it? Seventeen years old, I started on the Peterborough Evening Telegraph. Right. And my job in those days, when this is the seventies, was driving a little mini around uh, around the Fens, which is where, because that's where Peterborough is. Um, so it's a very flat part of the. Of that's the Wales. UK. No, 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 this is East Anglia. This is on the oh. edges of East Anglia. Now, Peterborough is a very, uh, uh, I think, rather, sadly, rather dull place to... Uh, but you uh, were the John Pilger of uh, East Anglia. I was Anglia. the John Pilger <laughs> of the Fens, yes. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I did, I did many notorious things at that time, including marrying people off, uh, a couple off, uh, two weeks ahead of time, because one of the jobs uh, as an ju- absolutely junior reporter was to kind of write up the wedding report so people would fill in the forms. Right. And you'd have t- separate boxes, so those that were getting married that week, the next week, thereafter, you see. And I was trying to get ahead of my time, ahead of myself, and so there was a big wedding two weeks down the line, which I had somehow put in the wrong box and wrote it all up saying, you know, the bride would look glorious in her white, this, that, and the other, and, you know, the, bride, the bridegroom had a, you know, a suit from blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff, and there it appeared in the paper, and it was two weeks ahead of the wedding. This seems to be a consistent theme, actually, in, in your back history. I mean, you've got a, a rather mysterious entry in your in Wikipedia, which says that you're known for condensing a six-minute news broadcast into three minutes. Ah, uh, yeah, that was... The, so, you know, <laughs> you know, the great thing about uh, career, and I always encourage people not, not to be worried too much if they're not quite sure what they're going to do, because I have done so many things and in television. Uh, I mean, I've largely stayed in television and journalism, but, but, uh, but done many things, and one of them things that I did for a very shortish period, actually three months altogether, was present on Granada Television, their nightly news, so, uh, you know, reading the news and presenting items. And I just wasn't terribly good at it. I, I looked okay, and I think they thought I was presentable enough to be stuck in the studio, but I had a sort of terrible... I don't know what it was. It was about, you know, as the camera comes into you when you're reading the news and the light goes on, there was one particular evening, I just, the adrenaline just surged through me. And what I'd read in rehearsal, the news, at six minutes, I managed to gabble through in about two and a half, which left me looking at the camera, looking very awkward. Did you smile at least? Well, I tried to smile. I didn't know what to do. And (laughs) what I could hear was, you know, you have an earpiece in your ear, people burbling down saying, slow down, Andy, slow down, fill, fill, fill. I just couldn't. And I just remember sort of looking blankly at the camera thinking, I can't quite think what to say really after the news. 
<laughs> and this all, anyway, it, it actually got slightly worse because I then had a further problem doing trying to do a live interview with an MP down the line uh, between the Westminster studio and Manchester. And that all went horribly wrong too. And at the end of the, the live show, that sort of light dimmed in the studio and this voice boomed from the top saying, Andy, your destiny is to be a producer. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. And that, that is indeed what you are. And, uh, and for those who are not familiar, Left Bank produces some of the most wonderful uh, television. Um, actually, almost a fifth of all the television produced in the UK, I think, comes through your studio. It is extraordinary, yeah. We do, have, do uh, we are responsible for an awful lot of drama in the UK, um, which is enormously um, um, pleasurable. So you'd, you'd know, the, the, obviously, The Queen <coughs> on Netflix, um, one of my personal... Oh, the Crown, The Crown. Oh, sorry, The Crown. Um, I understand. So the, the, the Queen was the movie, yes. the audience was the play, and The Crown is the TV but you're show. responsible for all of them. Yeah, right? I am. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> um, and, of course, the, the wonderful uh, guilty pleasure that is Strike Back. Um, I have to say, though, one, one of my favourite shows that you made was actually something that unfortunately didn't run very long, but was Zen. Ah, yes. Which was that wonderful, um, you know, detective show set in Italy with um, Italians played by English people. Yes. Well, that, 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 followed, <laughs> that followed Wallander. You know, I got very excited because Wallander was, the, was, the, was a bunch of Swedish novels, very, very good uh, hmm. novels, which we brought to life with Ken Branagh as a Swedish detective. And flushed with the success of Wallander, I thought, right, OK, Italy is the next place I want to do because I, want, I wanted to... You see, the great thing about going to places uh, to make shows is you can enjoy them. And I, I, wanted, I love Italy. It's a great country. And I thought, that'd be very nice. We'd do a whole series. That's a Italy. great show. Yeah, and thank it, you. It, it's a wonderful tradition of English people playing Europeans. Yes. Uh, oh, I grew up with Alo Alo, so... Yeah. <laughs> yes, cruelly, cruelly cut down in its prime by the, the, the um, person who was running the BBC at the time, actually. It was a very successful show. People liked it very much, yeah. actually. Anyway, there you go. You win some and you lose some in TV. And so you have we'll, to just keep marching on. We'll talk a little bit about, about the uh, crown later. But, I, you know, this is you know, we, we met uh, when I was giving a talk for Sony Pictures Television. Uh, Very good it was too, Mike. Very Thank interesting. You, uh, but, you know, the, the whole focus of that, that, that day was really how the business of television was changing. And, uh, and I think it's quite extraordinary given that you've been one of the most successful producers creating content for these new platforms uh, like Amazon and Netflix. You know, from your perspective, what, what's changed in the last few years about the way people buy and consume and commission television? Yeah, no, I think television has massively changed. And I, 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 I mean, obviously, obviously it's massively changed because we've gone for essentially from, you know, as little as back as well, certainly 20 years ago, you, you, you had, what, four or five channels in the UK pre-Sky. And then Sky introduced, obviously, uh, uh, much more options. But really, in the last five years, you've seen the you, the the, the uh, Netflix and Amazon just revolutionising the way people watch television. I mean, mm. it might have started with the box sets, of course, on CDs. People got used to watching. You'd buy a big box set of series stacking. Yeah, series stacking, and get used to that kind of way of viewing. It. But the but the but the guy Ted, uh, who runs um, Netflix, Ted Sandros. I mean, that was a visionary. Uh, uh, idea that 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 you that you would down you, you would be able to people would be able to stream all the episodes of any series they wanted to watch, and uh, when you when you when he talks about that as I have done several times with him, maybe he he says absolutely everybody in the business in LA said it was a 
to be a disaster. It was a terrible idea. It wouldn't work. Wait, where did they get? How did they get to that point where they realized, thought that that would be a good idea, regardless of common sense? Well, I, you know, I just think he. Ha- I think he absolutely. His instinct absolutely was that people wanted to watch television when they wanted to watch television. So if you want to watch a new series of The Sopranos or a new series of The Crown, you want to watch it when you want to watch it, and you want to watch as many episodes as you're in the mood for. Hmm. I think he understood that the modern world has changed so much that people's, you know, people are not interested anymore in sitting down at nine o'clock. Uh, because it, because X was on, you know, and that was the time, and they, you know that was it. I mean, yes, there was, we had to have recorders, and people could time shift and stuff like that. But it's so much better, isn't it? You just switch on your Netflix or your Amazon, and then bang, you watch it when you want to watch it. Do, do you feel that's changed the way that we write television as well? Given that you're not writing for commercial breaks, you're writing for potential multi-episode consumption. I think uh, yes. I think I think there are many more writers now involved. In, I mean, scripted tele- television has gone up hugely. There are now four hundred series a year produced in America, original series produced in America a year. I mean, that is just absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? Especially when people were predicting that the future would just be all reality games. Absolutely. So that that is the big <laughs> that is the big change. So if you go back ten years, reality television had taken over. It was, all, it was Big Brother's the only business model that works. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, there was Pop Idol and Pop, you yeah. know, and uh, uh, the X Factor and. All all these shows and, 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 and certainly 15, 20 years ago people absolutely thought drama was not finished but certainly marginalised but pe- what, what people thought liked about television was you know, essentially live reality shows uh, not li- as live but I mean the, well some of them were live but, 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 but the, kind of the spectacle of, of, of reality shows uh, talent shows essentially most of them really were uh, and that drama was marginalised and then of course with with people moving away, with the introduction of Netflix and those sort of streaming services, people have lost interest in the, in the television in the, in the living room, essentially. But it means there's so much more television is now consumed individually on the phone, on your iPad, on your computer, just when you want to watch it, basically. Right. And the, the family experience is, is rapidly diminishing. It's still there. It would be wrong to say that it, doesn't, it isn't there. To a degree, it's still there for some shows. I mean, your Bake Off and stuff like that still attracts big audiences. But it's all essentially in decline right. as we dissipate into our own things or only come together for specific it's just it's paradoxical that the death of traditional television has led to an explosion of television watching well indeed <laughs> that, that is absolutely it is a fantastic irony isn't it it's not that people don't want to be entertained they just want to be able to control their entertainment in, in their own way and that is exactly what the entrepreneurs who put Netflix together and to some extent the people who are driving Amazon and Hulu and now Apple as well yes they understand that you, you know and of course for the new generation I mean anyone under sort of say 30 for example terrestrial television and the old oh what's on tonight you look up the TV page and at 8 o'clock this is and 9 o'clock that with I mean, a highlighter they, yeah, <laughs> yeah with a highlighter yeah. I mean they, that's never been part of their experience anyway you know no. so my kids for example never never ever I, I don't think they even really understand ITV and BBC and Channel 4 I mean it's not it doesn't come into their thinking at all but, but even the the way that terrestrial television networks both here in the US commission shows it is still quite traditional I mean, could you tell me the story about how you uh, were trying to shop the, um, well, the crown around it is, it is, I think it's, it's, commissioned, it's all commissioned in a traditional way, but I think what is interesting is the, is the way that the new OTT companies, the, the, um, the digital companies, if you like, are, are seizing on material much quicker, making quicker decisions. So when we were 
selling the crown, we we took it out. We took out the uh, the. We, we basically what we did is we went to America for a week and went to see five different companies, FX and HBO and Showtime and a couple of others. And the final meeting was Netflix. And this was myself, Stephen Daldry, who was the executive producer and attached director, obviously, <coughs> uh, and Peter Morgan, the writer and creator. We'd sent a, a, a pilot script ahead of the the meetings, so they'd read the script. They they knew what the series was about, and then they took the meetings with the three of us. And we had a sort of presentation where Peter talked about the, where the script went and where the, how the series was. And Stephen Daldry waved his arms around and talked about the vision and how it would look and what have you, and I did a few practical details. And in each of the uh, meetings that we had, other than Netflix, there was real interest in it, a real discussion about it, real thought, but no, no one in the room in any of the previous four meetings said yes we want it or no we don't so and this is this is a standard for a television meeting these days other than other than the new, the new so you go in you you, you pitch what you you hope it's all about follow-up later did they like it not quite sure you couldn't read how did you read the room what do we think they're going to go for it or not going to go it's like for criminology it? yeah it's like criminology. <laughs> with the netflix meeting we pitched and Ted Sandros immediately, who was in the room with, with Cindy Holland, who is the creative, Ted is the creative director of Netflix, and Cindy's the number two, very powerful lady, a very wonderful lady. And uh, Ted immediately just sort of said, that's fantastic, uh, we'll have it. I mean, I, I, what he was talking about was what we pitched was 20 hours of television at, at, at a quite a sizable amount of, you know, several million dollars an episode. So we, 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 it's quite, it, it was sort of utterly extraordinary. I mean, we nearly, I literally nearly fell off my chair. What did you say? Uh, we were speechless, actually, to be truthful. And then on top of that, they said, you know, and, and you know we do a light touch, not really notes. We, we, we trust you all to, 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 to make a great show for us, which, of course, is the complete antipathy of the most, way, most television companies uh, operate, whereby the commissioning editors get very, very involved frequently. I mean, depending on who they are, depending on the channel, but very often they get very heavily into notes and just watching the cuts and telling you this and telling you who you should cast and who you shouldn't cast. It's one of the difficulties of making so, television. Pr presumably, the, the reason why they were able to behave like that in the meeting was that they'd already made the decision. Well, exactly, Mike. I think, that, I think that's exactly, I think you're absolutely right. I think they had pre-decided, because the way Netflix worked, it's an algorithmic-based company where when they're thinking, or certainly in the early days, and this was early days, I mean, they had a certain amount of money to spend. They had a great ambition. What are the big ideas? And they were going to launch in the UK. And they were going to launch so. in the UK, yeah. Right. So at the point we pitched, they were still only really in... Uh, uh, North America, a bit of Scandinavia, I think, but very, but, not, but uh, you know, about five or six territories. That's all. And we had no idea at all when we were pitching to them that they had already pre-planned a global rollout, and they were looking for a brand that had some, you know, c connectivity, I suppose, around the world. And and you know, it doesn't get a lot better than the royal family, does it? The British royal family is a big brand. I mean, it sounds a bit crude to describe it as such, but it is. When you say they're an algorithmic company, what, what, what do you mean by that? That's what, fascinating. Well, what I mean by that is, I mean, this is, I mean, they do explain this to a degree, but this is mostly what I understand, is that when they were, certainly in the early days, well, I mean, they make a lot of decisions now, so maybe they may not do quite as much research now, but when they're, they're, certainly when they were planning big stuff, so, so to take something like the Royal Family, okay, here's a proposal to, to make a big, uh, huge historical series about, the contemporary series about the, the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Now, how would that have, how, how, how successful is that going to be? How much impact is that going to have? So what they do is look at, the, uh, look at, uh, look at everything that relates to 
to prior to this project. So the Queen was the obvious example because we made the Queen, and that has a complete. Uh, and that know, was running on Netflix. Uh, well, mm. I, I think I guess it probably was, but I mean, even if it wasn't, it probably was like running on Netflix. But even if it wasn't, uh, you know, they had the box office, they had the analysis, they had the critical, right. they had the DVD sales, they, they had done all that. They would know exactly how that had performed. Then you had the play, the audience, which was sort of which grew out of the the movie. So Helen Mirren came back put the crown back on and was the queen again on the stage in London initially. In the audience. Uh, yeah, in the audience. And then in, in, in New York, it did Bonanza Business, obviously, which is great. Great reviews, won a lot of awards. That's great. So there's the pre the, the antecedents to the show, if you right. like. But over and above that, there are also lots of other um, examples of where royal documentaries or royal dramas, Mrs. Brown being one, for example, Victoria, the um, King's Speech was another one. Yeah. The, it is not true to say that everything royal works. But they could also look at all the data on their existing user bases as well about different yeah. shows and genres. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. But I think you, if you're thinking about the UK, the, probably the most successful export we have, in a sense, over and over, pop music, the bands, the rock, rock, rock and roll, is the royal family. Mm. Rock and roll and the royal family, that's pretty what the UK is good for. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a bit, it's a bit silly. But I mean, it's, you know, in a world where most royal families have disappeared around the world, somehow or other, either through many ups and downs, which is, of course, part of the appeal of the series, uh, uh, the British royal family have, 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 have largely survived and to some extent gone from strength to strength with with amazing uh, low low points like the you know post the Diana's death being one of them so once they decided to commission the show and, and it obviously it went to production and, and 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 did very well what kind of feedback were you getting from them I mean did what, from the royal family not from the no. <laughs> oh, from Netflix for Netflix I, I'm just I mean if, if the if the show was born in data um, as it went on, were they, were they sharing information with you about consumption patterns? Because there's no, no ratings to go. For. No, no, the no Netflix, uh, Netflix and, and Amazon. In fact, all these OT, what, what I just call, called OTT services, uh, d don't show data. Right. Uh, they don't show data because I suppose, um, you know, in a way. Uh, Doing ongoing deals, renegotiating deals—that's uh, in television. It's often based on performance. So yeah. you know, you put a show on a network television, it does ten million. They go, "Hey, this is a, this is a ten million show. We need to renegotiate. Uh, you're not, not paying us enough money." Um, so I think they all, I think, quite wisely. Thought, well, we, we 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 don't want to do that. So we're, we're not going to tell anyone how it's, how so it's doing. That must be quite challenging. As a, I mean, <laughs> it, it was easy going in, but um, it well, yes, quite difficult except, once except that they, they sort of tried to do deals where which stretch several years ahead anyway. So right. so to to avoid any serious renegotiation. Um, and actually, you can in the end of the day, you know what shows. You just know what shows are successful or not. Right. You don't know specific numbers, but you know from the way people are talking about it, and and whether it gets in awards, whether a show is successful. I mean, the Crown is in a lot of awards, and a lot of people are talking about it. It is a success. So someone's show. obviously watching it. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank thank God. Amazon has got a slightly different approach in the way they've been doing shows, and since they haven't been commissioning whole series. I mean, actually, one of the pilots that you made, which I really loved, was uh, Oasis. Uh, which was in, looked like you spent a fortune on. Yes, we did. Oh, um, but then there was just one one episode. So I mean, Amazon have sort of this approach of creating pilots and seeing if people watch them or not. Yeah, 
I, how, I do, how does that compare? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not, it's, 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 it's not, for a producer, it's not a great way to make a show. You, you make a show and then you wait to see if the, if the public like it. I, I get all that, but, but you, it's a bit stop-start. You sort of get, you get everything together, you make the show, you make the pilot show, it goes up, and, and we are now in the final throes, I think, of being able to convince Amazon to go for the series. But it's been a bit of a, quite a long old process. But that's the extreme version of a data-driven television, yes, it which is. is you, don't just use data to commission a series, use data almost episode by episode. Well, yes, I mean, what, what Amazon would argue that they, do, they it's really what their customers want. You know, they're very consumer driven. They are, I mean, they're very different beasts on Netflix because they essentially, they sell toilet paper. Uh, well, they sell pretty much everything you want in the world, yes. which, is, which is kind of interesting about, you know, Netflix are uh, simply about programs, uh, films, television. I mean, there are, they, that's what they say, they are an entertainment company. But no, but Amazon isn't really an entertainment company. It's really a it's a it's a retailer right. of almost everything you want, and it's just a little little it's a little side operation. The uh, film TV it really is. I mean, and do you think that colours their their approach? I do, definitely, definitely, definitely. It's a tech company that's for flog anything, and that's just a bit a little it's a little part of it. And I'm told that in the Amazon process, one of the difficulties of getting a show commissioned in Amazon is that it's sort of they consult all the different bits of the business. So people have nothing to do with television. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad idea because they're consumers, but that's, that, that's what they would argue. Well, why should we not talk to the people who flog the toilet paper because they watch the TV, so they've got an opinion on it. I get it, but it's, <laughs> it makes it quite challenging right. because you, you, this, the decision-making process at Amazon is definitely slower and, uh, and more complex than someone like Netflix, who's, who so far, and certainly in my experience, have been incredibly instinctive and incredibly supportive. So you go into Netflix, you punch a show, they go, yes, we want it, and we want it this way. Bang, go for it. Netflix is able to spend so much money on content at the moment because of their, I guess, their incredible valuation and, yeah. and the fact that they haven't got very strong competition. Yes. Um, looking forward five, 10 years, uh, do, you, do you see the landscape looking similar? or do you Well, I think it's a very interesting question. Because this is bonanza at the moment yeah, for content creators. I, 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 I'm not even sure you can look five years. I, I think things are moving very quickly. I mean, mm. Apple have just announced that they're going into content for starters. No, that's a hell of a big beast, Apple. I mean, if they're really serious about it, then Apple's going to be a very serious contender. You're going to pitch? You're going to pitch them Princess? Oh, I'm going to. I'm going to go and see them next week. I'm going to pitch them something. I'm not sure quite what. Um, how, about, have how, about, how about a series on the corgis? <laughs> Well, we just got a we've just got a commission off um, off YouTube, which is interesting too, and uh, uh, this is an interesting story actually because this uh, we had a runner, a young runner came to work in our company, uh, a young lady who was just twenty four years old, um, and uh, she uh, she was a bright young thing making tea and coffee, running around, and uh, so we gave her a job at the end of the twelve months to be a junior script editor, hmm. and we discovered she was also writing scripts in her spare time. And uh, one thing led to another, we had a conversation with her about it, and we were at Sky at the time, we were looking for a space show. So we said we were thinking about, you know, in a sense, submitting something, if we could find somebody who was interested in writing a space show. She said, oh yes, I'd like to write a space show. So she wrote, the, so we commissioned her first script, she wrote the script. And, uh, and a kind of, you know, format for the, for the series. We sent it into Sky. It was a sci-fi? Yeah, sci-fi. Oh. Yeah, it was about a spaceship going to another planet and then an asteroid crashes into it and, uh, and then the crew disappear. The guys wake up. I mean, the, 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 the passengers who are going to the colony find themselves adrift in the middle of the, uh, uh, the, you know, the galaxy, if you like. Uh, the crew have disappeared and there appears to be some kind of alien on board. Huh. So it's... it's uh, uh, 
It's a familiar-ish uh, a piece, but, but, but with some original spins on it. Anyway, we sent it to Sky. Sky knocked it back, didn't go for it. We were at Channel 4, didn't go for it. And then it sat in the bottom drawer for a few months. And then we got phoned up by uh, our agents in America, WME. And um, the lady we, we, we work a lot with said she was looking for a genre piece. Did we have a genre piece? So I said, well, I do have a space show. I had two, two space shows. I had this other space show, but this was the brand new one. I said, yeah, we've got this brand new thing. I said, but it's a very unknown writer. Uh, little, you know, she's very young, she hasn't got any credits, but it's a really good script. She said, oh, send it over, send it over. Anyway, one thing led to another. Uh, we see it went to ABC initially, who loved it, but didn't go for it. And then she's running back and said, YouTube are looking for a space show. So YouTube. I said, okay. So I said, send it, to, send it to YouTube. And then literally three days later, the YouTube executives rang, rang up and said, we love this script. We want to go straight to series. I go, you're kidding me. And the funny thing was, this is absolutely true. So I rang up this 26, now 26-year-old writer, who was working for Kudos, one of our rivals, doing a, doing a different show. Because her, her script had become, she, the, the pilot script that we had commissioned had, had become her, her, her sample, if you like. So a lot right. of people read it, liked it, and she started getting hired for a lot of jobs, right. which is great. And she was become a very hot writer. And I rang her up and I said, listen, her name is Mika. I said, Mika, that's fantastic news. Um, YouTube want to commission um, commissioning you for a, a 10 part series and we're talking about four or five million an hour this is a 50 million dollar commission and she said mm, you know i've sort of moved on a bit i've uh, i've uh, my head's in a different place oh millennials i know i said mika i said this is not something you've had in your drawer for 10 years you had it in the drawer for about 10 weeks now get <laughs> Take your ass over to our company, and we're putting you on a plane. You're going off to Los Angeles, and uh, we're going to do this deal. And YouTube's going to make a spaceship. Yeah, this is YouTube Star Trek. Yes, my gosh. Yes, that's it. So we're uh, we're so we're busy. Uh, just trying. We're just you know. So we're in the this, this is interesting about the new generation, actually, because um, you know uh, one of the, one of the things that amazed me when you were telling me the story about your own kids. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I think it's Jack and Finn, right? Yeah, You've yeah, got these that's twin right. boys, and and they were themselves. Um, internet celebrities on YouTube uh, a couple of years back. They were. Uh, the most extraordinary experience for myself and my wife uh, were to suddenly find your 18-year-old twins being feted around the world. Uh, and mobbed by teenage and girls. And mobbed by teenagers. I think they yeah. had something like 4 million um, they people did. subscribed to them on YouTube. They did. Uh, and there were many, many bizarre experiences to that. But uh, uh, one of the most vivid ones was, was jetting off to... Um, Sri Lanka one Christmas for a, for a couple of weeks uh, family holiday and we found ourselves in the capital and we just checked into this um, quite smart hotel um, and um, we'd been there a couple of hours and uh, the, the phone rang in the room and I picked it up and said the man said Mr Harris I said yes he said you have to come out here there are so many people who have come to see you many 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 people here and when no one can get through the lobby so can you come down and talk to her? I don't know what they come and I said I, I promise you I don't know anyone in Sri Lanka so I, I said I'll, I'll, I'll get something sorted out put the phone down I said Jack and Finn come here <laughs> and because what turned out and happened is that they had tweeted out that they were going to Sri Lanka and that they were landing in the capital that's all they had done which was I mean trouble enough and the kids it turned out kids had staked out the three or four hotels in the capital that um, that we were likely to stay at and then we was they were spot one of them was one of them was spotted going in and out of this hotel and so everyone had come there and all these young girls who were following them on on YouTube had were accompanied by mostly their mothers or their grandmothers or something like that because yeah, they were all about 13 12 13 14 right. those were the followers of, of, of they were catnip for twins they were catnip for twins
Anyway, so they had to. So the boys had to go down to the lobby, and what they were, they were, they, 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 they led them all out into a park. Uh, where they would do selfies with them and what have you. Oh my gosh. But that was, that was a regular for several years of our life. It's still to, to some point now, even though Jack's Gap, which is what, the, which was, what their site was, doesn't, um, uh, they don't, the boys don't post in, the, in anything like the same way now. They still post some stuff, but not, they were doing sort of regular videos. They did about 70 or 80 videos. Did, did they pick up something? I mean, because Dad was making <laughs> traditional television and they were making, in a sense, new television. They were. What 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 do you think they you know, the kids these days or your boys just had an in, intrinsic grasp for? I think for the they new had an intrinsic. Yeah, I think they had an intrinsic grasp. But we didn't encourage it anyway. They had been oh. making little films since ever since they were twelve. But it wasn't because we gave them a camera and did it. They used to buy all their own stuff. To be honest with you, um, I mean because it's relatively cheap these days to buy little cameras and video cameras and stuff like that. What, what is the difference from your obs observing this phenomenon? What was the difference in storytelling on? A platform like YouTube versus the traditional scripted. Well, approach. I didn't think there was much at all, and <laughs> I was amazed that Jack, well, both of them actually, was had to grasp the uh, basic essentials of telling a little narrative over three or four minutes, uh, incredibly quickly, and uh, in, in, in a sense by instinct. I mean, you know. But what was interesting about it is, as they, after two or three years of it, they, when they became frustrated, and I suppose that in a way they just started to grow up. You know, they, so they, the more experiences they had as they got older, they, they, they just wanted to make different sort of content, which was challenging because of the audience didn't want them to move away from the, from the kind of poppy fun stuff that they had started out doing. But what was difficult for them was to moving from, from, from not only from, from light, lighter stuff to much more serious stuff, so, you know, stuff about the environment, stuff about not so much politics, but the environment mainly was what they became concerned about, or charitable causes, you know, education, you know, stuff like that. They started traveling all around the world. They went to the Philippines, they went to Japan, they went to Africa, um, you know, lo lots of America, India, they had a big trip in right. India. So there were lots and lots of travel stuff, but they, but they could, they found it hard to work out how you could transition into making longer films. That mm. was the challenge. That is the challenge for YouTubers. What do they do? Do they just end up doing chat shows? And I mean, you know, my boys were offered chat shows on terrestrial television and were offered, asked to go on, get me out of here, I'm a celebrity. And, I mean, they were offered a million pounds to go and get me out of they here. They walked away from all they, well, they walked away from all, yeah. Which is wise, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, just, just lastly, I mean, given that we're sitting in this wonderful uh, grey, cloudy city, uh, you know, one of the things I reflected on was why are the, why are the British so good at creating um, television or, and TV show and content. I, I know you described it, you said one time, which I thought was quite amusing, is that someone like David Bowie could never have come from the Mediterranean. <laughs> like, yeah. There's something intrinsically... Yeah, that wasn't my line, but I, when I read it... I, I, there's something intrinsically British ab about some of these iconic uh, creatives. So, so what is it, do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think it partly is our weather. There is there's something about the, the atmosphere of London. I mean, not just London, but I mean, of, of the UK, actually, to be truthful. I, 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 it is very, very interesting. I spend quite a lot of time in Spain and Ibiza, and I don't create much in Spain. It's very interesting. I love it there because no. the sun shines and it's very nice and good, what have you. But I, I, I think Gorgon's the only person who actually did anything creative on a tropical island. But <laughs> in fairness, he did most of his painting when he came home. <laughs> that's, fair. Well, that's, it. that's it. So I think, it's, uh, strangely, there is something about the something in the British psyche. I don't, you know, I, well, I, I, I have no un real understanding of what it is, but there is something that makes makes makes, makes us a very creative nation. It's you know, music. 
uh, we've always had the head, we punch way above our weight in music and always have done you know yeah. long after the sort of rock bands and stuff like that we're still doing it with 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 in all sorts of different ways whether it's our Dell through to hip hoppers and grime artists and stuff like that it seems the UK always has a, a fantastic sort of beating musical heart and television too you know we're great at creating formats we're great at doing drama and and not just uh, historical drama not just plundering uh, you know our, uh, our, our historical culture as we do a bit in the crown but I think we do it in a way that is interesting and is challenging and is hopefully uh, revel revelatory <laughs> you know it isn't it isn't the chocolate box version of the, of, uh, the royal family well. it's designed to be uh, something which both which is uh, both insightful and challenging and is interpretive of course it is it's, well, nobody really knows quite what the Queen said in her bedroom on a certain night I mean I'm the clue but it's an intelligent take um, and, and it's designed to be uh, provocative and, and, and stimulating. Well, with a little creative genius comes a touch of misery, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, it's been wonderful uh, seeing you again, and uh, thank you for being on the show. Pleasure, Mike. I enjoyed it very much. That's a quick half an hour, I must say. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.